Amen. Thank you, Car family. Appreciate you. Uh, kids, you are dismissed to Sunday school. I remembered this morning to dismiss you before I get started. I'm so proud of myself. Have fun downstairs with Sister Roberta. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes again this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles with you, feel free to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We're just going to cover these four verses here, 9 through 13. Um, And then starting next week, we're going to do a a sermon on last night. I had, um, I number my my, um, sermons to kind of help me upload them online so they're all in order and stuff like that and so the this slide that we're looking at right now said ecclesiastes 15 i'm like don't worry we're not going to ecclesiastes ecclesiastes 15 because there's no there's not 15 chapters in ecclesiastes and someone out of the crowd said well good i'm like oh it's encouraging to you as well huh (laughs) so that's kind of funny but uh, ecclesiastes chapter 9 verses or chapter 8 verses 9 through 13 is where we're going to be at the title of the sermon is the wicked and the and the god fears and um, and so next week, I was beginning to tell you, next week we're going to do a, a, th- a sermon on Thanksgiving, since we're going into Thanksgiving week, and then the following after that, we're going to start our Advent series. We're going to have four, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Eve. We're going to uh, have the Advent candle uh, lit, and we're going to go over the, what the, each candle represents to just kind of help our minds focus on what the season truly is about, and that's the promise of the Messiah coming and the Messiah coming to seek and to save those who are lost, reconciliation through him. And so we have, that way we can use Advent to use the entire month to really focus on what, what it's truly all about, not just the, the day of presence and, and all those things, but what Christ has done for his people. So I'm looking forward to that. So I encourage you to come, and so you'll be out of Ecclesiastes for a few weeks, too. Give you a little break on that as well. So <laughs> everyone's nodding their head. Amen. All right. Well, I hope you'll, the Lord will meet with you this morning as we open up God's Word, and uh, through the Spirit will minister to your heart in spite of what is proclaimed. That's uh, the amazing thing about the Spirit of God. I don't know how many times when Tara and I first got saved, we'd go sit under preaching, and we'd go home and have lunch and talk about the sermon, and we got completely two different perspectives, right? Because the Spirit was ministering individually to us. Um, that's so exciting when that happens. So I'm praying that will happen for you all today. And uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 9 through 13 is where we'll be at. Uh, let's go ahead and read the Word of God, and then we'll get into it. All this I have seen, applying my mind to all the work that is done under the sun. At a time when one person has authority over another to his harm. In such circumstances, I saw the wicked buried. And they came and went from the holy place. And they were praised in the city where they did those things. This too is futile. Because the sentence against an evil act is not carried out quickly. The heart of people is filled with desire, the desire to commit evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, I also know that it will go well with God-fearing people, for they are reverent before him. However, it will not go well with the wicked, and they will not lengthen their days like a shadow, for they are not reverent before God. Will you pray with me? Father, we just come before your throne and ask that you would work in our hearts and amidst and amongst us, Father, that you would um, apply what you have for us today through 
through your word that your spirit would 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 uh, would do what you, what you've desire to do that your will would be done in our lives and we just ask that you would help us to submit ourselves to your will and to um, to open our minds and our ears and our hearts for what you would have for us for the proclamation of your word and we ask it in Christ's name and God's people said Amen. Yeah. All right. Okay, so I just want to do a quick outline for you. Um, and, uh, what, I, what we see in these verses, just to, to kind of go through it, and, and it's kind of the journey that I took this week in this, in this passage of Scripture, feeding off of last week where we were talking about how we are to submit to governing authority, right? So the, the previous Solomon opens up chapter 8 about submitting to the king, the sovereign, and then we took it in the New Testament context. What Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13 about how we are to submit to government authority until, right, until the government begins to declare what God has said is good. They declare to say that is evil and vice versa. What God said is evil, they declare to be good. That's when we, we obey God rather than man. And so I kind of had that attitude amongst, in, my, in myself as, we, uh, uh, as I begin to study this out. And, and we, as the, the title of the sermon suggests, right, the, the God-fearing people versus the wicked is what Solomon is talking about here. And so I kind of had that, that spirit about me of like, yeah, we're, we're standing up for God and what is good. But uh, over time, just God began to work in my heart and to remind me, you know what? Is that really who you are? Are you a God-fearing person? And so I, that's kind of the journey I went through. I just kind of want to give you a preface for where I'm taking us this morning as we see, first of all, what is given to us from the Word of God and, and uh, tried to reflect to you back what, uh, what is there faithfully, what God, the Spirit has inspired for us to read. In verse 10, it's the, the first point is the hypocritical religion. He's, he's um, you know, he gets to the end of verse 9 and he, he says, you know, all I know is this, as a king, those who are in authority are the ones uh, subduing and, and doing the oppression of the poor. The ones that are in authority and have the authority over people, they're doing harm to those that, are, uh, that they have authority over because of the corrupt nature of humankind. And so, you know, he, his whole goal in that passage of Scripture was to say, look, you're to submit to the king and you should be protected if you submit to the king. But ultimately, no one really knows. Traditional wisdom kind of fails us because, right, we lived in a corrupt and fallen world. And so that's not always the case. And then he gives us these circumstances of, again, these themes that he continues to repeat to us uh, throughout his, this book. These things that he observes with his eyes and he's frustrated with. And he's touched on this fact that the wicked seem to, are the ones that seem to prosper. In verse 10, In such circumstances I saw the wicked buried. They came and went from the holy place, and they were praised in the city where they did those things. This, too, is futile. And so hypocritical religion is what he's pointing out to. He's observing that the fact that the very people that are wicked are, are in the city and um, doing these things. When they're, when they're buried, people come and go from the holy place. They put on their, their best clothes, and they come to the holy place, and they, they give homage, right? But it's, it's all for show because in reality, they're truly wicked, I saw the wicked buried. They came and went from the holy place and they were praised. The people that were doing those things, he goes on to say, were the ones being praised. But they were the ones doing the wickedness in the city. And so he saw this hypocritical religion putting on the show but not carrying that out in their hearts. In verse 11, we see a delayed judgment Solomon 
observes that God's judgment is being delayed, and because of God's judgment being delayed, it only encourages evil. And so this is Solomon's cynical statement, right? He's like, ah, the wicked are prospering, not the righteous. Traditional wisdom says the righteous are to prosper, but it's the wicked prospering. And he says in verse 11, because the sentence against the evil act is not carried out quickly, the heart of the people is filled with the desire to commit evil. It encourages them to do more evil when they're not punished for it. All of us that are parents know that, right? When our babies are small, right? Those that are wise and went before us, you need to be consistent about your, your consequences for, for disobeying, right? Because if you, and they'll trust you and they'll try you, right? And they'll, 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 they'll sense that you're, you're at a weak moment and so they're going to disobey and see if, right? But it's, it's, it's the consistency of if they know that they do this, they will have consequences, right? How important that is for our children to learn, and for us to learn, it's the same. It's because it's, they are humans, are us, humans just like us. And the evil, the ones that have no, seem to have no um, authority over them, they do evil, and because there's no punishment, it encourages their heart to commit more evil. But then Solomon, that's a cynical statement, but then Solomon gives us his confessional statement about God, who he knows God to be. Again, he's using this letter to... to demonstrate his frustration with the realities of the fact that um, uh, God is good and God has revealed himself to be all-powerful and, and God is righteous and holiness. And he, he, he says in the Old Testament that all, all evil will be judged, right? All sin will be taken care of and judged, but yet he observes with the reality that it doesn't seem to be happening that way, that it's the evil that are prospering. And so he's demonstrating in this writing this struggle that he's having that, of who he knows to be God, who, what God, who God is, and who he's revealed himself to be versus what he's seen with his eyes. And so we can all relate to Solomon in that regard. His confessional statement about God, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, it seems like it's the ones that are doing evil are the ones that prolong in their life. I also know, this is his confession, that it will go well with God-fearing people for they are reverent before him. Reverent is the Hebrew word there is fear. They fear God. Right? And that we know that, that Solomon's already given us his conclusion of the matter, right? It's best to live this life with the perspective of God and what he's doing to fear God and fear his righteousness and fear, fear his holiness. His confession is this although it seems to be the fact that sinners and evil, the ones doing evil are the ones prospering, I know it will go well with God fearing people for they are reverent before him. However, it will not go well with the wicked, and they will not lengthen their days like a shadow, for they are not reverent before God. All right, that's his confessional. That's traditional wisdom. That's who God has revealed himself to be, that there will be a day of judgment. God is holy and righteous, and that will happen. And so as I was starting this out, again, again, I've already told you the the kind of the pathway I was on, like we we're standing up for good, but God began to convict me. It's like, you know what? Really, you, you're not. Who are the, the God-fearing is the question that I came up with. How do we define those who are God-fearing versus those who are wicked? Right? And we know that, as we talked on, touched on last week, that we need to define it by God's standard. 
and not our own, and not culture's, certainly. Right? It is by God who, and God's standard is what we define what is God-fearing and what is wicked, not what we think. And so we have the benefit, and we've, every sermon that I've preached through Ecclesiastes, I've been thankful that God has revealed, he didn't stop revealing his revelation to us at Ecclesiastes, right? Because we'd all be pretty much in Solomon's boat, the cynical Solomon, where there is no meaning and purpose to life. We just circular, we just grow up, we, we live, we work hard, we die, we leave our possessions and belongings to somebody else, and life just moves on. There's no meaning and purpose to it outside of the understanding of who God is. But God didn't stop there. Praise God. He's given us his complete revelation. We have everything we need for life and godliness, the Apostle Peter says. And he has defined for us what this world is all about, what our meaning and purpose is, and it is found in glorifying him. And having been reconciled to him on his great rescue mission that he's carried out through the gospel, there's so much meaning and purpose in his complete revealed revelation. And it's just amazing. But, but let's get back to these questions. Who are the God-fearing and who are the wicked? How do we define those things? But we have the ability to go to the New Testament to be able to, to have God's complete revelation and to answer those things more succinctly, right? Many times Solomon's come to the conclusion, he goes, I think there's an afterlife, but who, who really knows, right? He was in this, stuck in this position because God hasn't, hadn't completely revealed his, his full plan during when Solomon was living, but we do. And so what does the New Testament say about who are the God-fearing and who are the wicked? And this is where God began to work on my heart, where I, we're, the, we're the righteous ones. We're the good ones. We're standing for God. We obey God rather than men. But in reality, God's word says that we all fall in the category of the wicked. In fact, if you'll remember, Paul uses a quotation from Solomon in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Solomon, in his prayer over the temple that was just built, mentions this. He repeats it again in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20. There is certainly no one righteous on earth who does good and never sins. Paul uses Solomon in a quotation to, in his letter to the Romans to demonstrate to both the Jews and to the Gentiles, to all of humanity, that there is no one righteous. There is not one. And Paul uses the Old Testament, many of the Old Testament sayings, because Paul as always, masterfully ties in the gospel message to the New Testament, or to the Old Testament, right? It, the New Testament is completely dovetailed to the Old Testament. They're not distinct, different ways to God. They are, they are God's plan. And Paul, in attempting to persuade people's understanding of what God is doing, their understanding of trying to appease God through obeying the law and making laws around the law so they didn't even come close to disobeying the law, only to, to Paul, as Paul has demonstrated in, in Galatians that we've already gone through, that the intention of the law was to show us that we fall drastically short, that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one, and all we have to do is try to obey the law for a day. And we see that. 
The laws hold it up as a mirror to reflect to us who we truly are. And Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? Are the Jews better than the Greeks or the Gentiles? Not at all, he says. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And as it is written, there is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what got good. There is no one who does good and not even one. And you might be thinking, as I used to think, that what do you mean that people have been following God for generations? What do you, what do you mean no one seeks after them? There's, there's religion. Well, it's because we were designed as worshipers to worship God. And they might even call what they worship God, but is it the God that is revealed in his revelation? That is the question. Is it a God that they, they submit to and submit to his word and who he's revealed himself and his righteousness? Or is it a God that they've made up in their own mind and hearts? A God that's easy to appease because it's more like them instead of the God of the Bible. And Paul is trying to demonstrate to them this very fact that if you understand who the God of the Bible is, who God has revealed himself, the creator God of all that we are in existence right now, he's revealed himself as holy and righteous, and not one of us measure up to his holiness and righteousness. We are all in the tents of the wicked, those that are in the evil part. And we know because he's holy and righteous and just, if he's truly just, as anyone would know, a judge that lets a murderer off that is a convicted murderer and the evidence is a shadow of a doubt that he's murdered and the murderer stands up and says, well, judge, I've done a lot more good than this one time that I've murdered someone, so would you just please let me off? And if any judge were to say, yeah, you know what, you've done more good. You, you had enough community service hours where that's going to outweigh your bad, so I won't, I won't punish you for that. We would all stand up and demand and cry injustice. What's the difference with God? He's given us his law. We've all proven we fall short and have sinned. Is God truly just if he just winks at it? We say no. The Bible declares no. God must judge and we have God's complete revelation and so we know that there's coming this day and we've, we've gone there before so I don't want to dwell too much on it, but we have the complete revelation. And so maybe uh, the, the, the hope that you're fi- trying to find this morning is in the fact that no matter what the chaos that is happening around us in our society and in our culture, in our world, right? Even under the, our own roofs sometimes, no matter what's going God, God, there's coming an end. It, Solomon is incorrect in, think, in, in, in implying here in Ecclesiastes that life is just circular. And no matter what we do, what's just fatalistically going to keep happening. Time is linear. God said, let there be light. There was a beginning. And in Revelation, we see the end of this age. And God judging all iniquity and evil because he is truly just. If he's truly just, he must judge it. And we see that in Revelation. There's this time at the end of the, right? This is me skipping to the end of the book, right? Everyone... I'm not the only one that does that, right? You start reading and you're like, really? Like, I got to know what happened. This is what we're doing. We know what happened. We, we know the end of the story. There's this great multitude in heaven and 
uh, Christ is vanquishing all evil and Paul's seeing this vision and he says in Revelation 19, after this I heard something like uh, the loud like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. His judgments that are coming are not some evil, vindictive God who just has a... uh, No, they are true and they are righteous judgments. Perfectly true and perfectly righteous. All those who will be judged have every reason to be judged. Because he judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth and her sexual immorality. If you want to know what that means, then I encourage you to attend the Tuesday night Bible study as Brother Denny's going through the book of Revelation right now. He's, he's marching us through those things. And so that happens at uh, 6.30. Typically is when you guys start, uh, there's, there's fellowship at 6. And then 6.30 when they start, he's walking us through these, these verses to find more understanding of what God is communicating here. But we see the picture, the him judging, his judgments are true and righteous. And so if you're like me, it leads to another question. Well, who's, who's, who's evil? and Who's going to be judged? And what's the, what's the box? What's the list that I have to keep to, to not be judged by God? What are the religious practices that I must do but he gives us the definition of all who will be judged here in Revelation 21.8. But the cowards, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters. And so you might be going, well, I, ha- I, don't, I don't measure up. I, I think I'm okay right there. And then he gets us all. And all liars. Their share, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He goes on in Revelation 21 to say that all those who are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be cast into this lake of fire and judged, perfectly righteous, perfectly just to do so because they have violated God's law. And if you are like me, growing up, How can a loving God allow that to happen? Well, God is loving indeed because he sent his son to die for us, but he's also holy and righteous and just. He must judge sin. We can't think that if we do enough good, it's going to outweigh our bad. In the eyes of a holy and just God, we'll never measure up. And that's why Jesus had to come. That's why Jesus had to be the propitiation the vicar who stood in our place to take that punishment for us. Punishment for us. James quotes an Old Testament passage here for those who say, well, no, no, God wouldn't do that. I've, I, I, I'm not a murderer. I've done all these good things. James lays it out for us when he quotes the Old Testament here. I neglected to look it up where he, was from, where he got this from, but it's from the Old Testament. It says, for whoever keeps the entire law, you keep the Mosaic law, great. Yet you stumble at one point of it is guilty of breaking it all because God is holy and he is just. You keep everything, but you lie. What does Revelation 21.9 say? All liars. We all fall drastically short and that's what the law demonstrates to us. So we are all 
as much as we want to be the God-fearing camp, right? Outside of Jesus Christ, we all dwell in the tents of the wicked. We are the ones that deserve God's judgment and God's wrath. And so the third question that I was processing that I came to that Solomon talked about in verse 10 was how he said delaying the delayment of God's judgment encourages the people to increase in evilness. So the question that might be in your mind this morning is why does God delay the judgment of the wicked? Why does he delay that? And the New Testament answers that for us. The Apostle Peter, in his second epistle, his second letter, he's writing to some believers who are being persecuted, who are doubting, who might be having a crisis of faith, who, who, who really knows what's going on. But he, he's writing to encourage them to, to stand fast and trust and that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah and to hold fast to those things. And so he's trying to encourage them. And he says, above all, beware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming that he had promised? John chapter 4, Jesus in the upper room said, I'm, I'm going to go away, but I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back for you. That was his promise. And when he rose from the grave three days later, and after spending time as the resurrected Savior, being seen by hundreds of people, he, Acts chapter 2 records Jesus ascending into the clouds to, to sit at the right hand of the Father. And as the disciples are looking up at him, descending or ascending into the clouds, the angels say, don't worry. Just as he is leaving, he's coming back for you. That is his promise. But the scoffers in the last days will say, where is his coming that he promised ever since the ancestors fell asleep? All things continue as they have been seen since the beginning of creation. It's that same cynical attitude of Solomon. That's circular. It's all just cyclical. There's no meaning and purpose. We're all just a cosmic accident. Where is his coming that has been promised? And the Spirit inspires Peter to write these things and the Spirit has preserved these things for us even today that we hold fast to God's promises. Jesus is coming back for His bride. Jesus is coming back for His church. He goes on, verse 8, for the sake of time, we're jumping to verse 8. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. So again, what's the question? Why is the Lord delaying His judgment? With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but at all to come to repentance. The King James translated patient with you as long-suffering. God is long-suffering. He puts up with the evil. He's delaying his judgment because he is at work in his creation saving a people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm so glad. It's selfish, I know. That the Christ didn't come back just the day before I was invited to go to that 
revival where the gospel was proclaimed and the Spirit saved me. So thankful that God is long-suffering and patient, putting up with the evil. And though it's frustrating for those who fear God and follow, seek to follow after him, we know he's at work in it. And so he puts up with evil. But he's not just setting it aside. There's coming a day where he will be all judged. All those who fall under those categories in Revelation 21 will be judged if they're not found in their Lamb's book of life. If they're not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is what Peter is saying here. God is patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but that all would come to repentance. And I have to stop here and just define repentance because it's, it's a loaded word. It's been used in church history for a couple thousand years now. And it's, it's kind of, as words do, right? Kind of gained, it's, it's lived and mutated and gained another definition than what Paul is writing here. Because repentance often is confused with penance in our modern age in religious circles. Penance is, I feel sorry, God, and I'm going to prove to you how sorry I am by showing you how, you know, how I'm, my heart is broken over my sin, and so I'm going to prove to you by not doing it anymore, and I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever you need to do to show to you, to prove my penance to you, to, to demonstrate that I deserve your love and your favor because I, I feel bad for my sin. It's not repentance from the biblical definition of the word. Metanoia. The Greek word that Paul uses here is a change of mind. That's what happens when the gospel is proclaimed. That's why I'm up here this morning. I know many of you sit in, the same, in this room Sunday after Sunday and you hear the same gospel message, but it's the only thing I know that truly brings happiness and life and joy and meaning and purpose and salvation to a lost mankind. And so that's what I proclaim. Because the word declares that as you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Spirit uses that as a means to convict a person of their need to trust and believe in Christ Jesus who went to the cross on their behalf to pay the penalty of their sin for them so they did not have to be judged on that day, great last day, the great right throne judgment. He stood in our place and took our penalty for us so that we might be saved, that we might be given a new heart. Not the evil, corrupt heart that we were born with, rebellious against God, but a new heart that seeks after God and the, the Spirit of God who dwells the heart of the believer. That's, that's what is this great salvation that he's given us. But as the gospel is preached, there has to be the Spirit working in you and convicting you of your need to receive and believe and trust in Christ to have a change of mind. To abandon hope in your, your good outweighs your bad. To abandon hope in your religious membership or your religious self-righteous works. To abandon hope in your lousy, you can tell I'm mad at it, teaching of the professor, college professor who says there is no God and there is no meaning and purpose. That you have a change of mind as the gospel is proclaimed and that you would receive Christ as the only way to be reconciled to your God through the gospel message. To trust that he went to the cross for you. That Christ didn't just die on the cross for sin, that Christ died for you.
Would you trust that this morning? Would you abandon hope in all else? God loves you. God is a God of justice and holiness, but he is a God of love. How can a loving God send people to hell? God loved you so much, he sent his one and only son to die for you. There's no penance that you need to do, but you must repent. You must change your mind and embrace this gift that is extended to you and believe and trust in Christ alone. I pray that you, if you haven't done that already, that you would do that today so that on that great day of judgment, your name will be found in the Lamb's Book of Life. That that judgment had been taken care of for you by Jesus Christ over 2,000 years ago. So we come back to this question of who are the God-fearing, who are the wicked, From the New Testament perspective, we understand that we all are in the category of the wicked, but through the gospel, as we fear God, we fear God from who he truly has revealed himself to be a God of holiness, a God of justness, a God who has a perfect standard that we must adhere to if we are to be with him. That should drive, that the fear of God should drive, and the fear of his holiness should drive us to what? Abandon hope in all else and place our faith and trust in Christ alone. Who are the God-fearing of those who understand that if they're outside of Jesus Christ, they have much to fear. But if they trust and believe in Christ alone, if they are placed into the body of Christ, we are covered in His righteousness by His shed blood, and we no longer have a God that we have to fear We have a God who we can call Father. We can be reconciled to him. We can be adopted into his family. Not through penance, but through repentance and belief and trust in Christ alone. And I pray all of you have had that encounter, but you can do that right now. You can call out to him. You can ask him, Lord, if this is true, reveal yourself to me through this power of the Spirit. I, I, I don't know. It's like Jesus said in, in John chapter 3, the Spirit, the movement, the power of the Spirit, the movement of the Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it's coming or going, but you know its effects. And I pray the Spirit's working in your heart to this morning, that you would call out to him, that you'd abandon hope in all else and place your trust in him. And if you're here this morning, I hope somewhat you've been reminded like I was this week, right? I started off with, we're the, we're the righteous. And that's, that's a scary place. That's the legalistic heart that I have, right? I, I was in a church that, uh, that kind of implied the fact that it's the, the, the real righteous ones are the ones that not only went to church on Sunday, but on Sunday night. Those were the really righteous ones, Right? That's a dangerous place to be because you're now you're establishing, you're justifying yourself in what you're doing and not in the righteousness of Jesus. The reason why we're God-fearing is because God has done a work in us. We understand who God is. We've received and believed and trusted in Christ and now we are given this new heart that wants to please him and pursue him. Not for us, 
for, for his glory, that he might be magnified in his creation. And I pray if you, I know I talked about and preached about the gospel often, and I'm going to continue to do it because it's our only hope. It's mankind's only hope. But maybe some application for you is how, how, how can you preach the gospel to others? How can you take what the gospel says and, and give the good news to others? In the West, we've kind of fallen into this trap where we, we let the professional people proclaim the gospel. No. You are the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. You are the light that's not to be hidden under a bushel. My job is to equip you for the ministry. And so I pray. I pray that you would take this gospel, internalize it, pray over it. Hopefully it's a, it's a part of you. But I pray that, that God would give you the courage to share it to this world who are falsely thinking that their good is going to outweigh their bad. They dwell in the tents of the wicked. It is only when they understand who God is and His holiness and that fear of God drives them to Christ, the shelter, the only means in which we can have reconciliation to our God. I pray that's the case for you this morning. I pray that you have the privilege and opportunity to give this message to someone else. Because as pretty as they might be on the outside and as much as they're acting how all things is well in their, in their life, if they don't have Jesus, Revelation 21 is going to be a reality for them. And I won't wish that on my worst enemy. Let's, let's pray that God would use us in the lives of those around us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your reminder of God of just what a great salvation you've given us, how it has nothing to do with us. The more we try, the, the, the more we demonstrate how lacking we are. But you've done a great work. You've done a work through Jesus, and we're so grateful. God, we just pray that you would use us in our community and our friends and our family and our neighbors that embolden us to internalize this gospel so that we might speak it to others and that you might work through us, Lord, for your glory. We ask it in the name of our Savior. Amen.